Now let's turn to the reading and proclaiming of God's word. It is Easter morning, and so let's not joke around. We all know what we're going to talk about this morning, don't we? It's easy for you to think, okay, here he goes. He's going to try to prove to me in 30 minutes that the resurrection was real, that it actually happened. But surprise, I'm going to do something different. I want to ask and answer a question this morning. Why do we need the resurrection? Now, an answer might come to mind quickly. We just heard Bob say we need the resurrection for forgiveness, and that is true. But our passage this morning presents some other reasons why we need it, some more personal, applicable reasons. You can follow along in the mobile bulletin if you like, or you can just listen as I read for us the gospel according to Luke, chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us. Oh God, we come before you on this beautiful morning thankful that Luke recorded this interaction for us, that the disciples were willing to share what went on in that room. We thank you that you have proclaimed to us that when two or three are gathered together in your name, there you are as well. And so I ask this morning that you would help us sense your presence here with us as real as the disciples experienced it. I pray that we would hear the words of life this morning, that we would know and believe the gospel and be changed by it. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I am not a big fan of going to the dentist. There's several reasons. I don't like people being all up in my personal space a very good reason not to like the dentist. Another reason is that for the past 15 years, I have never been to a dentist that hasn't walked into the room, picked up my chart and said, Stephen Chitty, oh, your wife was in here earlier this week. She has perfect teeth. (laughs) Seriously, 15 years, never happened. And no dentist has ever said that to her about me. I've asked. There's another reason, the last reason I dislike going to the dentist, and that's they always seem to find something wrong, unless you're Nicole. They always seem to connect what they find wrong in your mouth with something that's going on in the rest of your life. For example, two visits ago, 
the dentist pushed back from the chair and she said, you must really be stressed. And I thought, what is this, a counseling appointment? She said, you have been grinding your teeth at night and you have ground off all of the sealant on the back of your teeth that they put on to prevent food from getting caught down in there. You actually have two tiny cavities growing back there because you don't have any sealant left. It's not a big deal, she said. Well, the amount of time that I spent in that chair and the number of tools and hands in my mouth told me it was actually a big time, big deal. Uh, so much so that I didn't go to the dentist for, I kid you not, three years after that. Until a couple of months ago, Nicole made me an appointment and I was sitting in the waiting room and something hit me. Everyone needs a dentist. Whether you go to the dentist once every five years or you go once every six months, you need the dentist. Whether you brush and floss twice a day or you brush once a week, you need the dentist. Guess what? If you're a dentist, you need a dentist. The same is true when it comes to the resurrection. It doesn't matter if you're skeptical of it. If you've already written it off as a complete hoax or you believed in the resurrection when you were a kid and you've never questioned it since, you need the resurrection. Maybe you go to church once every 10 years. Maybe you go every week. You need the resurrection. The chief priests and the scribes who conspired to arrange Jesus' execution, Judas, who betrayed him, the crowds who cried out, crucify him, the centurions who nailed him to the cross, the women who arrived on Sunday morning to anoint his body, and the disciples huddled together in that upper room, all of them, like you and like me, need the resurrection. This passage that Luke records for us tells us specifically that we need it for our fears, for our doubts, and for our future. I have three points for us this morning, our fears, our doubts, and our future. We're going to start by looking at why we need the resurrection for our fears. I want you to try and picture this scene. The disciples are all gathered together, this group of friends. They used to be 13 of them, but then one of them, Judas, betrayed another one, Jesus. They're both dead, and now there are only 11. Suddenly, there are 12 again. Jesus has appeared. Verse 37 tells us that his appearance has startled and frightened the disciples. Yeah, I would say so. But the fact is that that's not the fear we're talking about. The fear that these disciples are experiencing started long before that. John, in his gospel account, says that the disciples are gathered together in an upper room and the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. They had just watched their friend, their leader, their teacher, murdered horrifically. And Peter, as we read on Good Friday, was called out as one of Jesus' co-conspirators, as it were. By lying, he escaped, and now he is gathered together with his ten friends, and they are afraid. They are thinking, we are next. Fear of physical suffering, yes, obviously. Fear of the unknown, probably. But what about the fear of having to just go back to everyday life? The fear of actually having to face the pain of losing their friend, Jesus. To face the pain of losing this movement that they had been a part of. What about fear of never being as known and as loved as they had experienced in Jesus' presence? Does any of that resonate with you? 
I think it's a safe bet to say that in the past year, fear has taken its turn as being the dominant emotion of your heart. Maybe it was the fear of contracting COVID. Maybe it was the fear of accidentally passing it along to someone that you love that was not as strong and could not fight it as well as maybe you could. Maybe it was the fear of an unknown or uncertain future. What about the fear of never going back to the way life used to be? The fear of losing some of the freedoms that you have grown to expect? What about the fear that you are not as valuable, as needed, or as useful as you once thought you were? What is it that you are afraid of? Fear often plays a role in our lives that's somewhat hidden, maybe deeper than we know. I recently learned that I like order and I like cleanliness, not only because of the peace that it brings to our lives, but because of the fear that it protects me from. I was talking with a friend of mine who was a counselor a couple of weeks ago, and I mentioned to her that I feel the weight of responsibility to keep all of the systems in my house and at my job up and running. I feel burdened with that responsibility. I should have known that making a statement like that to a counselor would have led to several questions. And question after question led me to the realization that I am afraid of what chaos and mess would say about me as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, all of it. I want to run a tight ship because I'm afraid of what I would look like if I didn't. Whether it is flush in your face or it is slinking around in the background, what fear haunts you right now? What fear makes you, like the disciples, circle the wagons, turn inward, wondering, am I next? How does Jesus respond to fear like that? Well, we see here in this passage, he meets the disciples in the midst of their fear. Literally, he shows up in the room that is filled with fear, and he says, peace to you. He is calm. He is compassionate and understanding. And I don't know about you, but I don't often deal with other people's fears that way. I want to get over it quickly. I think, come on, that's what you're afraid of? Get over it. Move on. Let's move on. Let's move to the next thing. Come on. Jesus is calm and he is compassionate. When you are afraid, when you look at the world around you and you think, how could this get any worse? Am I next? Jesus' response is not pushed through. You're afraid of that? Do you know what I went through? It is, I understand. I see that fear. And I have beat that fear. He comes to us from a place of understanding. From a place of victory. Right? It would be one thing for someone who had never suffered a day in his life to say, Oh, don't be afraid of that. It's all going to be okay. You don't need to worry. It's something completely different when someone who has been so afraid of the trial in front of him that he has sweat drops of blood and then has willingly walked through this event, the worst possible death, when he comes out the other side and he comes to you in the midst of your fear and he says, peace to you, there's something there. There's something that he understands that we don't understand, something that he gets that we don't get. In the midst of our fear, we need the resurrected Jesus to come to us, to look us in the eye and say to us exactly what he says to the disciples, peace to you. I know something that you don't. 
I've felt that fear, I've been through it, and I am here for you, peace. It calms the heart. But so often our hearts and our minds, they're not connected, right? We need the resurrection for our fears, but we also need the resurrection for our doubts as well, right? Jesus is in this room with them. They recognize him, and yet they still have doubts. He calls out the fact that doubts have arisen in their hearts. Again, the gospel writer John tells us that Thomas in particular was really deep into this doubting game, so much so that he tells the resurrected Jesus to his face, I will not believe unless I put my hands in the nail holes and in your side. What is Jesus's response? You don't trust me? Are you serious? You know me. Here I am. You are still doubting that it's me? Do whatever you have to do intellectually to figure out that A equals B and B equals C, therefore A equals C. No, Jesus does not say that. He literally says to the disciples, come to me. Come to me. He says, see my hands and my feet that it is I, myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When we are doubting, Jesus says, come. Maybe your doubts are like the disciples, doubting the validity of a real bodily resurrection. How could a dead person come back to life? The resurrected Jesus says, come. Come and investigate me. We have the Bible, right? Historically accurate records that are all about the prophecy of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. These valuable, authentic accounts that can be scrutinized. And Jesus says, come. Simon Greenleaf was a lawyer and a professor, one of the principal founders of Harvard Law School. Even though he studied and taught in the mid-1800s, his treatise on evidence shaped all of 19th century law. In 1846, as an agnostic, he set out to use his principles of evidence to disprove the historicity of the resurrection. He wrote a, a paper titled The Testimony of the Evangelist to show that their witness, eyewitness accounts of the resurrection would not hold up in court if they had been called as witnesses to confirm that Jesus actually rose from the dead. After all of his investigation, all of his explanation and study, he writes this. In all human transactions, the highest degree of assurance to which we can arrive, short of the evidence of our own senses, is that of probability. The most that can be asserted about this narrative is that it is more likely to be true than false. And it may be in the highest degree more likely, of course, still short of absolute mathematical certainty. Yet this very probability may be so great as to satisfy the mind of the most cautious and enforce the assent of the most reluctant and unbelieving. Simon Greenleaf came to Jesus' life with his doubts, and the resurrected Jesus met him there. Maybe your doubts aren't about the validity of the resurrection. Maybe your doubts are more about you, whether or not you are good enough to be called a follower of Jesus. Maybe your doubts are about whether or not surrendering a particular area of your life is a safe bet. Maybe your doubts are about the safety of being labeled a Christian. Maybe your doubts are about 
excluding all of the other religions out there, that only one is right, only one way to God. Maybe your doubts are over Jesus' provision and protection over your life. The resurrected Jesus says, come to me and find out. And it's not just a, a proof thing, right? He didn't show his hands and feet to the disciples so he could say, see, I told you, can we move on now? It was more of a come to me and let's chat. Let's be together. Let's walk together. You know how I know this? The next words out of Jesus' mouth are, you got anything to eat? He was hungry. The resurrected Jesus doesn't say, don't you trust me? He says, come to me with your doubts. Look at what is true about who I am, about what I've done, and let's walk together to figure it out. Walk together where? Walk into the future, into our future. We need the resurrection for our fears, for our doubts, and finally for our future. In that upper room, the disciples did not know what to do. The leader of their group was dead. This movement that they thought would bring them into Jerusalem as leaders, as rulers, had crashed and burned. It was extinguished with a whimper, leaving them alone and scared for their lives. What were they supposed to do now? They knew that that old thing that they had been living for the last three years was gone, but what was next? I actually got a glimpse of that exact emotion this past week when I saw a video of the skateboard phenom Tony Hawk. If you don't know who Tony Hawk is, he basically single-handedly took skateboarding from a hobby and turned it into a worldwide phenomenon, a sport for sure. He's basically responsible for the X Games. And I can remember being 13 years old, sitting in front of the TV, watching live as Tony Hawk landed the first 900, spinning two and a half times, 10 feet above a vertical ramp, thousands of people in attendance, and me watching at home. Now, here we are. All these years later, and Tony Hawk has realized that his body probably should not be soaring 20 feet above a vert ramp, so he decided to do one last Ollie 540. Now, the trick itself doesn't matter, but he landed it, and when he came down to the bottom of the ramp, he slid down to his knees, and he began to weep, and it was obvious from his face what was going on in his heart. Was this the death of the old Tony Hawk? Was this the beginning of the new Tony Hawk. What would life look like now? What is this thing? What if this thing he had given his life to, this piece of wood with four wheels, was never a part of his life again? What is his future? What is your future? What is it that you are looking at right now? Never actually interacting with your coworkers again. Your kids potentially never going back to school having broken relationships with your family and friends, having an endless search for a new job, potentially moving away from all that you've ever known. The disciples, they were feeling just that. And that's why the way Jesus speaks to them at the end of this passage is so powerful. He opens their minds to see that all of the Bible is about him, that he was God's promised Messiah. He says this is what scripture is about. The laws of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, all of them point to the fact that I am God's chosen one, the Messiah. And you, my friends, are witnesses of this. 
God said all this would happen, and you are the ones seeing it become true. But then he says this. This is interesting. Verse 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The disciples, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about, what this promise was, because it was a promise that was intertwined with the promises of the Messiah. All the way back in Joel chapter 2, who was a prophet, God said, on the day that I send my Messiah, I will pour out my Holy Spirit upon my people. And with the promise of that Spirit comes promises of blessing, of safety, of gathering all of God's people together once again, wiping every tear from every eye. It was a promise that God had made hundreds of years before. And then at the beginning of Luke, what we see is John the Baptist shows up and people are wondering, are you the Messiah? And John says, no, no, no. There is one coming after me who is more powerful. I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is the promise that Jesus is saying, the promise of the Father, the power that will come on the disciples. See, everything that the disciples had ever hoped for, everything that their parents and their parents' parents had ever hoped for, all of the promises of God were coming to fruition. Jesus is saying that starts now. The promises to be safe, to be cared for, for your tears to be wiped away, to be gathered together as God's people. See, the resurrection is kind of like a destination stamped on a train ticket. The resurrection tells us that if we are in Jesus, if we are his followers, then our destination is new life, resurrected life, the home that we were made for. But it's not just up there in the clouds. Someday we'll get there. It is here in front of us, in front of the disciples in that room, the kingdom of God come to earth. Our home here now, being God's people here now. We need the resurrection for our future because it tells us that things like cancer, losing a job, having to move away, the death of a loved one, fractures in your family, the trauma that you've experienced, those things do not get the last word. Those things are not the end. They do not win. If you are in Jesus, then your best days are always ahead of you. If life is bleak right now, if you don't know what's going on or know how you'll ever be able to change your situation, your best days are ahead of you. But if you're thinking to yourself, this is the best it'll ever get. I am peak me right now. Your best days are still ahead of you. The resurrection tells us that the kingdom of God is invading, it is advancing, and our destination is that kingdom in its fullness and in its glory. We are God's people now. Chris Nickich is a 21-year-old man in Florida who was born with Down syndrome. He was also born with two holes in his heart and uh, thinned ear canals. He's had three heart surgeries and five major ear surgeries. I learned about Chris through an ESPN interview with the title 17 Hours. And in it, Chris says when he had the last of his three ear surgeries, the doctors told him, you're never going to amount to much 
You're never going to be able to do anything well. And his response was, don't tell me that I will fail. Throughout this interview, they switch between Chris talking and his dad, Nick. And Nick provides a lot of background as to how Chris got involved in sports to begin with. Nick says it was after the fourth ear surgery that they noticed their son had become pretty sedentary. And so they wanted him to be more active. They wanted him to start jogging. And then after seeing him jog a little bit, they decided, let's try bike riding. And then they thought, wouldn't it be great if our son, Chris, could do a triathlon? When they first started working towards this goal, Chris could not swim the full length of a pool. He could not run a mile, and he couldn't pedal a bike more than a few yards before falling off. Fast forward through dad pushing him, getting him a coach, training a year down the road, It's November 17th, 2020 in Panama City Beach, Florida. Chris had 17 hours to become the first person with Down syndrome to complete an Ironman triathlon, swim 2.4 miles, bike 112 miles, and run 26.2 miles, a full marathon. As he starts, he gets through the swim and he gets through the bike. He has a a few hiccups here and there, but things go downhill around mile 10 of the marathon. He's uh, tethered to his coach and training partner for safety and for pacing purposes. And that tether starts to bother him. And he asks to be untethered. He says, let me run by myself. And the coach is concerned. And so he says, we can't do that, Chris. We got to keep pushing. And uh, he begins to shut down. And he says, I'm not going to do this. I can't do this. I need to be untethered. And the coach says, we need Nick. We need to get his dad. Bring dad in. And as soon as he said that, I just imagined what this dad was going to say. I I could see him standing on the sidelines saying, come on, push through, Chris. We've been training for this. Don't give up. Work harder. You're almost there. You're almost to where you want to be. Pushing his son more and more. And instead, what happened was Nick jumps over the sideline runs to his son and says, come here, gives him a hug, walks with him, says, let's do this together. You are already an Ironman. Eventually, Chris finished the Ironman triathlon in 16 hours and 45 minutes. But in that moment, when he was afraid, when he was doubting whether or not he could finish it, if he would ever get to his goal, ever attain his dreams, he needed his dad to say, Come here. Let's do this together. You are already an Iron Man. In our fear, in our doubt, and in our future, God the Father raises Jesus from the dead so that you and I can hear him say, Come to me. Let's do this together. You are already mine. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we thank you that when we were your enemies, you came to us. When we were dead, you came to us. You brought us back to life and you brought us home. We thank you that you willingly entered into this twisted creation that we twisted with our sin. You lived a perfect life that we could not live and you died the death we deserved to die. You rose again victoriously so that we would know for sure, guaranteed that the promises you have made for life, for security, for wiping away every tear, for all sad things coming untrue. We know that those are ours in Jesus. We thank you for him. It's in his name we pray. 
Amen.